You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. wonder what you would say if a lone preacher from one of the spiritually decadent countries in the so-called or so-called Christian countries in the West were to appear in a city like Beijing and spend three days just walking through the city preaching the gospel and then to witness a mass revival of the Holy Spirit and then for that to issue in the conversion and baptism of the communist government leading to an abolition of the state atheism that there is there at the moment and to uh, introduce complete freedom of worship, the worship of God, the preaching of Christ, and so on and so forth. I wonder, do you believe that such a thing could happen? When you look at a state like China in the present day, could such a thing happen? Of course, of course in China there's at least it's reckoned at least 70 million Christians. 70 million. Now, I know they have maybe, what is it, two or three billion people in China, but imagine that happening. An individual turning up in somewhere like Beijing and preaching. And through that preaching, a great revival come about. Maybe you think, you think, with difficulty that that could happen here in your hometown in a place like Macrofell. You would have difficulty believing it could happen here, never mind a city like Beijing. But a large city, a huge metropolis, in an atheistic state like China. And yet that is precisely the level of significance in the ancient world of what happened in Nineveh through the preaching of Jonah. Here was the seat of the strongest world power then known. This was at the very heart of that government. And this is what happened. Jonah preached, Nineveh repented, and believed in the living God. And Jesus' words there in Luke eleven twenty nine to 32 that we read a few moments ago provide an infallible commentary on the repentance of Nineveh. That repentance was genuine. It was real. It was true. How do we know? Because Jesus himself told us so. The Lord Jesus told us that. And their repentance was a rebuke to the Jews of Jesus' day. The Jews, remember, rejected their own promised Messiah. They crucified the Lord of glory. And consequently, we're told that the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with that generation and condemn it. Their faith, the faith of the Ninevites, rebukes Jewish unbelief and by implication, the unbelief in every generation everywhere. Nineveh calls us to the foot to the foot of the cross. 
and asks us, what will you do with Jesus? Nineveh points all men everywhere to the necessity of coming to the Lord for repentance and faith. Now, there are four aspects of this great change are brought out in the text, I believe. There's, first of all, conviction of sin. It says the Ninevites believed God. The first part there of verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. Isn't that interesting? Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. Does that strike you? Jonah preached and the Ninevites believed God. It doesn't say the Ninevites believed Jonah. The Ninevites believed God. At the simplest level, that means they took God at his word. And that meant for the Ninevites, accepting that God was justifiably angry with them and that he was not bluffing when he said he would destroy them in 40 days. So it should be borne in mind that Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites. Isn't that what Jesus says there in Luke 11? He was assigned to the Ninevites. He was a sign of the certain wrath of God against sin. But he was also a sign that a sinner can be spared because Jonah had been spared. So he was a sign of the wrath of God and he was a sign of the compassion and mercy of God. They saw both the cloud and the silver lining in the prophet from Israel. When Jonah did preach, his message was received for what it was, the very word of God. They believed God. They accepted the message as the very judgment of heaven, and they accepted it in their hearts. They didn't argue with it. They didn't try to, you know, make excuses. They didn't try to plead the extenuating circumstances. They didn't point to their background or their upbringing or the fact that they never heard the gospel, that they didn't have the law of God. They didn't do any of that. They didn't try to explain it away. Because they believed God, they were gripped by a, an awareness of who God is. They were gripped by the majesty of God, by the power of God, and most awesomely, by his wrath. The fact had dawned on them that they had a case to answer before an omnipotent and holy God. And of course, the fear of God's wrath is not the whole of saving faith, as we shall see. So there was conviction of sin. The Ninevites believed God. But secondly, we see that there was sorrow for sin. The Ninevites declared a fast. And all of them, it says, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That is a deep sorrow swept over the heart of a nation. 
Not only were they convicted of sin, they were grief-stricken in the realization of how much offense that they had offered to Jonah's God. They were laid low in the dust. And this is another aspect of Christian experience that is not nice and comforting and like the preaching of God's wrath doesn't sit well with many people. But such self-abasement I believe is another essential component of coming to the Lord. The Ninevites could neither flight nor flee, neither fight nor flee. They put on sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And basically what they're saying is this, I'm guilty. We're guilty corporately and I'm guilty individually. They were convicted of their sin. Tell me, let me ask you individually, what do you know personally of conviction of sin? Of a sense that by your actions or by your words, or by your thoughts that you have offended such a holy God, the God of Jonah, the God who threatened to overwhelm the Ninevites. This is the same God with, with whom we have to do. What do you know personally of such conviction of sin? convinced that you are wrong, convinced. And, and what do you know personally of sorrow for sin, distressed at the thought of offending God? Conviction of sin, sorrow for sin. Third thing we see is change behavior. The Ninevites acted on their profound sorrow for sin. It tells us that they fasted. They put on sackcloth. Their king joined them in this. Look at verse, at verse 7. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that, he will, that, so that we will not perish. And, and what we have here is more than a large number of individuals turning to the Lord and changing their ways. What we have here is an example of that rare event, a national turning from sin. A national turning from sin. The term people movement is often used to describe such mass movements for change. Now I want you to notice the order of events here. First, it was the people who acted. It was the people who were struck by a sense of their sin. It was the people of Nineveh who believed God. The people. 
the masses. Now, the reality is that the masses are usually wrong. The majority of society are usually wrong. What an extraordinary thing that on this occasion, the people were right. But, but there's more. Because secondly, the word reached the king. Verse 6, do you see it there? When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. How interesting. The people were moved, and the word went right to the top, to the king. Do you ever wonder how a nation can be influenced for God? This story discloses the pattern. The word went not from the leader to the people. It went from the people to the leader. And, and it seems to be a fact of life that most leaders are followers. It, that's a fact. It seems a contradiction in terms. Leaders are supposed to lead. But if you look at leaders, modern-day leaders, most of them are followers. They follow the crowd. They do whatever is popular. They do whatever the crowd wants. Most leaders follow the people. Leaders just have stronger personalities. Most leaders follow the 51% majority. And that's why they're so interested in opinion polls. Most leaders are followers, but they almost invariably lag behind. They legalize what has already been done. And this often happens when there's a greater uh, emergence of a lawless society. When, when law and order are pushed aside, the only thing left to do is to legalize the thing that has become so popular. For example, Sunday trading. You know, that used to be, that never used to be an issue. Everything shut down on Sunday. But then people began to open up and open up and more shops opened up and, and people just drove a coach and six through the law. What did our leaders do? They just changed the law so that it would be popular, so that it would fit in. You have the legalizing of homosexuality, pornography, etc., etc., because it was already going on. And so the laws try to catch up. A place like San Francisco has a population of about 680,000 and apparently a population of 120,000 homosexuals. 28% of the electorate are homosexuals. So any chance of being elected there, you've got to conform. And here's what happens. A leader follows what is advantageous to him. Now what I'm saying is that when people are moved, we can reach to the top. And, and that's how the dominoes fall. We must be moved individually. We are the Jonah in the world. The church, the salt must begin to influence the people. And so when the people are moved, then the leaders will take notice and they will follow. But then there's a fourth thing here that we see, and that's living hope. The Ninevites were convinced that, that they had sinned. 
and, and they were genuinely sorry for their sins. And, and they, had, they had resolved to change their ways, that they were going to live differently. But they not only feared the wrath of God, they also, in the midst of it all, entertained a hope. However faint that hope was, the hope was that God might yet spare them. The king's decree expresses that hope, doesn't it? You see verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, why should they think that God might relent? Let me give you some suggested answers. First of all, the fact that a time limit was given of 40 days. 40 days was set. That suggested that the verdict might be reconsidered. And, and this is not a strange idea today, is it? You get an electricity bill. If you don't pay, it will be cut off so many days hence. There's a threat that it's going to be cut off. So you have time. An insurance policy very often has a grace period of maybe 14 days over the, the due date when you're supposed to pay the bill. Certain physical pains may be warning signs that give you time for medical investigation and medical treatment that may save your life. A warning normally suggests an opportunity to escape, however slim. So that was the first thing that suggests there might be a hope here. The time limit of 40 days. But then there's the fact of Jonah's own deliverance. That argued that his God was a God of grace. We've already seen that, that Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites. If God spared Jonah, then he might find it in his heart to forgive them should they repent and turn to God for deliverance. And thirdly, the fact that God is a God of love as well as of wrath would have an impact on the people of Nineveh. A holy God is angry with all evil. And the same holy God is compassionate towards the work of his own hands. The work of his own hands is mankind, made in his own image in his fallen world. And consequently, God devises a means by which his compassion satisfies his wrath. And we know about this, don't we? In the New Testament, the fullness of his gracious plan of salvation is revealed in Christ. God is love. And he demonstrates that love. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and verse 8. Well, why did Christ have to die? Why did Christ have to die, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God? Why did he have to die? He had to die 
to satisfy the justice of God, to placate the wrath of God, so that God could be just and forgive the guilty and still be just. He loves with a love so amazing, so overwhelming, so infinitely gracious that he provided for the satisfaction of perfect justice through the suffering and death of his own son. And of course, that is why the gospel is good news. It's good news. When we were still sinners entirely incapable of improving our situation, not by one iota, Christ died and took the sins of his people upon himself to bring them to God. The preaching of Jonah therefore was not incompatible with a divine purpose of grace. The Ninevites were not mistaken in entertaining some hope. They had come to the God who is love, and therefore they were convinced that there was still hope. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. One last wee thing I noticed in my study. When it says there about Jonah going into the city, on the first day, it says Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That word proclaimed there means he cried. He cried. Even though Jonah is not marked out by his compassion towards the Ninevites, nonetheless, he has been given a word from God, and he must do this. He has to go and do this that God has called him to do, and he does it with all his might and sense of urgency. And it says there, he cried out. Here, here, here's a sermon. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. What is it? Eight words. But he didn't go along and say, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. I believe he heralded it like, like someone who was trying to warn people, uh, maybe their house has gone on fire and they haven't noticed. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go and wrap the door and say, Excuse me, I wonder, do you mind? You would say, Get out! Get out! That's what Jonah did. Jonah cried out to the people of Nineveh. Cried, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Judgment's coming. And the people responded. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's an urgency about this. As I was trying to say this morning, there's an urgency. We're surrounded by people in our daily lives, who are just as dark as the people of Nineveh, who are just as pagan as the people of Nineveh, who are seemingly as dark as dead. And, and you wouldn't have given tuppence. I'm sure Jonah wouldn't have given tuppence for any of these people repenting, and yet the whole city repented. 
And maybe we write off the power of the gospel in our day. You know, what's a mess? What difference is a message going to make? Well, I don't know about you, but it made a big difference in my life. And if you're a Christian, it's made a big difference in your life. So let's make sure that we share that, that we make it known so it'll make a difference in the lives of the people that we know, the people that we love, and the people even that we don't know, but we come in contact with. And we pray that that'll redound to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Mm-hmm.